0: Cooped to Thrill, shining headlights on the road less traveled, the podcast about thrilling careers and exotic lifestyles, how you might go about pursuing them, and inspiring stories from the driven individuals who have been there, done that. I'm your host, Chad Herman. Let's take a ride. So I'm sitting down here with Henry Bo Rogers, former fighter pilot and current commercial jetliner pilot. How you doing, Bo?
1: Man, I'm doing great. Happy to be here.
0: Appreciate you coming out. Bo's been a friend of mine for probably about three years now. We work at the Porsche Experience Center together in Atlanta. Bo not only has the job at Delta, but he works part-time at Porsche, instructing people how to go fast, which he is very versed in. <laughs> So I guess the more impressive part is obviously your fighter pilot career, but how do you enjoy working at Delta? Uh, is it a change of pace from the military?
1: Yeah, so I did uh, flight F-16s for 23 years in the military, in the Air Force, and it's definitely a change of pace, but it's a nice change of pace. And now that I'm a little bit older, I'm more mature, if you will, at Delta. I'm a first officer, so I sit in the right seat, flying 737s, and I'm also an instructor. So, I'll teach in the simulators for two months at a time, uh, getting either new hires to Delta or people who are just changing airplanes coming over to the 737. So, I do that for two months, and then I fly for a month. Kind of go back and forth with that.
0: A uh, little less high performance, I'd say. You sent me a meme one time that said it's kind of like being a really lame astronaut or a really cool bus driver. Do you say that's accurate? That's
1: accurate? <laughs> it actually, it's pretty accurate. So, we're basically a very highly qualified bus driver. I mean, there's tons of rules and regulations, and obviously flying planes is not easy, especially when things go poorly, and so we have to be ready for anything. But if everything goes well, it should be very uneventful and a nice, quiet ride for the passengers, where in my previous life, we didn't care about spilling the coffee. You're maxiforming the airplane, lots of hygies, definitely a more of an adrenaline rush than flying you know, passengers at Delta.
0: Being a fighter pilot... How much training did you have to go through was were you just kind of a shoe-in coming to delta or was there pretty extensive training as far as you know handling a lot larger airplane
1: so the physics of flying you know making the houses get smaller making the houses get bigger that's all about the same so my experiences from flying fighters didn't translate directly but a lot of it does translate you know being able to make decisions quickly you know being assertive being able to work well together which sounds kind of weird, right? You're in a single seat fighter, but you're usually not by yourself. So you're always working with your teammates or your wingman uh, either in a flight of two or a flight of four. So everyone has to know their job and do that well for the whole team to work well together. So it's just kind of the same thing on the 737. We're a two man crew. Flying is generally the same. Again, it's very precise because we have so many airplanes in the sky at once. Where in fighters you will have a huge airspace that's all yours to do all your tactical maneuvering. In the civilian world, there is much less space because we have so many more airplanes all going on the same routes. So again, the flying is very precise. So it's, uh, it's different, but it's still challenging and it's fun.
0: So would you say the, the camaraderie between pilots is, is super important, especially when you're a fighter pilot? Was there a lot of camaraderie between you guys or was it really competitive kind of thing?
1: Yeah, so it's, it is competitive, more in pilot training, because mm-hmm. not everyone gets what they want when they graduate, mm-hmm. and so the, obviously the top of the class guys get their pick, and then it kind of works their way down. So there is some competition, but at the same time, you're all in it together, and you have to help each other. Everyone has their day mm-hmm. where things are going poorly. There is a family kind mm-hmm. of atmosphere, even in pilot training, mm-hmm. but it's, you're so much tighter in the fire squadron. Because you literally have each other's backs, uh, you put your life in their hands, you're expecting you know, your wingman to, to fly precisely and he's expecting you to lead him correctly. And so with that kind of trust that goes on with each other, then yeah, you're very tight. Including not just amongst the pilots, but even the wives get really tight because when we deploy and go off to war, then you know the wives are left with everything to take care of, not just the kids, but you know, that's when the, the pipes in the house break and all that stuff. And yeah. so they're all kind of crowd around each other and help each other out.
0: Because it's such a competitive thing, once you've made it, you know, you're probably all really good buddies because it's like we've all been through this hell of making yes. it to this point, and now now we can relax a little bit. That's and, very and true, out, yep. Enjoy each other's company and uh, not at each other's throat trying to beat that other person, right?
1: That's right. And there's there's always little competitions everyone's Trying to be their best because you don't want to let your team down, just like on on any team sport. But once you've made the team, then that part, that stress is over with. And now you're just trying to be your very best pilot you can when you go out.
0: That makes total sense. I'd say it's the same with racing. I actually think it was less of a competitive thing between racers once you made it to the professional level more so than when you were at the lower ranks and you were trying to make it to that level. Then everybody's at, yeah, at each other's sense. throats. But yeah. once you've made it, it's kind of like, oh, we're here. We can be friendly.
1: That's right. You can be a little more respectful to each other and more helpful. Yeah, makes
0: S- sense. So speaking so. of racing, you've endeavored into a little bit of amateur racing yourself here recently, right? How have you enjoyed that? How does it compare to being a fighter pilot?
1: So- yeah, that's a great question, Chad. So it is super fun. Especially since I'm not flying fighters, then it's a great way to get a huge adrenaline rush. There are a lot of similarities and a couple differences. Racing, the adrenaline is about the same level. It's high, but it's fairly constant. You've always got cars around you. There's always some action going on. And so you're in control of your car, but you're not in control of what happens around you. You have to be very vigilant for that compared to flying fighters, where a lot of times there's nothing going on. Mm-hmm. and so there's it's more peaks and valleys the peaks though are much higher i mean you've got someone yeah. shooting at you to try to kill you or you're you know engaging the enemy with your own firepower then stress is stress is high drilling is super high but then when you're just going to the tanker to refuel you know it goes down a little bit so compared to racing flying fighters has a lot more peaks and valleys but the peaks are really awesome
0: yeah, so making a big, big pass in a race is not quite the same as getting shot at, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little more thrilling in a different kind of way. That's right, yeah. So. We'll get back to your fighter pilot career here. Where did you do your basic training? What was that like, you know? Is it more physical, more mental? What's, what's the more Im- important aspect there?
1: So I, I did pilot training in Wichita Falls, Texas. It's one of four or five Air Force pilot training bases. And for the first six months, it's flying a, it's a twin engine jet, but it's the tweet. It's Mm -hmm. not very fast. And then if you go into fighters after your first six months, you'll fly the T-38, which is a supersonic trainer. It is not, so the mental is much more important than the physical. You do pull Gs, so we would go to the gym and lift weights just to be able to withstand the G-forces. But it's more of a mental thing. And what I mean by that is, like, task prioritization you know, when things are you can't hit the pause button and phone a friend so you, you got to be able to always think ahead of the airplane and be able to make decisions at the right point and you also have to be able to test prioritize so if you're just worrying about what your airspeed is then you'll probably be off your altitude so you have to kind of know what to look at when make the adjustment and basically keep moving forward
0: but there are kind of physical attributes that can keep you from being a fighter pilot right like i've always heard that you can't be colorblind I've heard that there is almost like a height requirement. Yes, there um, is. <laughs> yeah. So you're a little, little bit vertically challenged. Was that a struggle, something you had to get over, or were you kind of right at the cusp of that height requirement?
1: Yeah, so you're looking at pretty much the shortest pilot in the Air Force because I, I was to actually, I've only passed the test once. So a little bit of story there. When I accepted my appointment to the Air Force Academy, that was I did that a week prior to them sending me a letter that told me I was not enough to fly and I'm like well I'm a man of faith so I'm like I think this is God telling me this is where I'm supposed to be mm-hmm. and if he wants me to fly then I'll fly but I will tell you that I would so I was, it was my sitting height I was too short I couldn't be a navigator I couldn't be a pilot and then the one test that mattered is your junior year when you take that physical that's the one that counts so I hung from gravity boots <laughs> I did squats so you know I could tense up my butt muscles try to get a little bit higher and I also wore a couple pair of underwear, some bike shorts, some sweatpants, and then my <laughs> and then my actual uh, uniform pants. Yeah. So I was I was giving myself every chance possible to uh, make sure I met the height requirement, and I think I met it by literally an eighth of an inch. So, and then I've never let anyone test my height since then.
0: Yeah. 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 May have may have shrunk over the years a little bit. Yeah. Don't want to test it.
1: <laughs> but you know, it's if you you know, the Air Force has to make. Airplanes with a certain amount of seat adjustment and therefore the cockpit has to be so big to accommodate that. so they can't make it for everybody. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there is a, you can be too tall and you can be too short. Being too short did create some issues in my training days. And so I would sit with the seat all the way up and literally my helmet would just be barely above the basically the sill of the, uh, the canopy. And then other people who are really tall I and mean, they'd sit a lot, a lot higher and can see more. And so, yeah, it was a little bit challenging with that. And there was times that I would actually break out of formation because I couldn't see the other airplane. And my instructor's like, Bo, where are you going? I'm like, I lost sight. He goes, oh, well, I saw him the whole time. <laughs> I'm like, well, I couldn't because, the, you know, the sill of the, cock, the canopy was so high. But I, obviously it worked out. And then once I got to the F-16, uh, it had a good enough adjustment where
0: it wasn't a factor. Nice. Yeah. So that's a
1: long answer to a pretty short question, but...
0: No, no, that was great. So, But there are people who who don't quite muster, like, aren't able to handle the G-forces and stuff like that, right? There are people that that's why they don't make the cut is they just can't handle the the actual physical requirements.
1: Absolutely, there is. So just to get through pilot training, you probably pull about six Gs. Usually the Gs are not a factor, but then... If you're going to get a fighter, you go to the centrifuge. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And if you're going to get an F-16, then they will spin you around to get to nine Gs, and you have to pass that. And some guys do not, just because physically they they can't either do the breathing correctly or they just can't handle the Gs. Before that, in pilot training, guys will get airsick. Mm -hmm. So you know, now you find yourself, you're you're sweaty. It's a high-stress environment. You've got a helmet on and this mask stuck to your nose that you're breathing through. And so it's very easy to get basically airsick just like getting car sick, and some guys never get over it, and they will wash out of that. Now, we have methods, basically it's called a Barney chair, that they will spin you in all different directions and make you throw up time and time again in order to basically get over it, Mm -hmm. but some guys never do. So, yeah, there is definitely a physical attribute to being able to fly well, but then you also have the whole mental aspect
0: as well, the decision-making and how to fly the airplane itself. Yeah, I'm sure the mental is is just insane. I mean, the stress alone of flying something that expensive, right? Like how much <laughs> does a fighter jet cost?
1: So, the F-16 is actually one of the cheaper fighters because it only has one engine and it's rated at $54 million. Okay. Yep. Yeah? And you could get an F-22 and that's more around $200 million. So, yeah, you are, you know, the Air Force hands you the keys and it's a big responsibility. You bet.
0: Yeah, no doubt. You didn't ever have to crash land one. Did you ever have to eject anything like that?
1: No, and, you know, the F 16 single engine. so if the engine quits, then you're going to probably be ejecting unless you're really close to an airfield. But I think it's a testament to the motors that we have and to the airplane itself. I never had to eject. I never even had to land without the engine working. So out of, you know, a little over 3,000 hours, 23 years, so I'd say that's definitely a testament of how good our, airplanes are in the Air Force.
0: Now did you land on aircraft carriers ever? I did not. Did not? No,
1: always just on the nice terra firma. I've been out to the carriers and I watched them, you know, with an exchange program, but I've never landed on the carriers and I have all respect for the guys that do. That is not easy.
0: No, it looks insanely stressful. Yes,
1: (laughs) (laughs) and they say that, you know, like on a a dark night landing on a carrier you actually have more stress than if you're in combat. I'm sure. And talking to the guys It's true. So quick story on that. When we were visiting, uh, I was in Saudi Arabia deployed to do uh, no-fly zone enforcement over uh, southern Iraq, and we had an exchange where we went out to the carrier for uh, about three days, and one of the couple of the pilots from the carrier came out and stayed with us. So we, like, crawled all over the carrier. We wanted to see everything. The guys from the carrier basically sat down on the couch and watched movies for three days. (laughs) Yeah. They were just so happy not to be on the carrier. But when we were watching the guys land at night, one of the F-14s landed, and then as it was getting back airborne, because it basically skipped, Ah. then it caught the wire and just slammed on the deck. And there's sparks going everywhere. And the guy that was showing us around was a backseater on a Tomcat. And he saw that and goes, that's it, I'm not sleeping tonight. Because he was going to do that same mission tomorrow. And just seeing someone Ah. else have such a hard landing... You know, basically sent him high stress, even though it was more than 24 hours away for him. Oh, so sure. That kind of shows you how how big a deal it is for those
0: guys. Oh, I'm sure you got anxiety all night, like you said. Yeah. You were a very good pilot, so you excelled to the top levels of the military, right? How did you kind of make yourself stand apart from the rest of the pilots out there? What was it about your skills that set you apart?
1: So... I don't know if I had any skills that were necessarily better than anyone else, I think. And there were also plenty of guys that went to my level or even higher. So I don't consider myself any better of a fighter pilot than the most other guys. But what I did is I I learned my trade and tried to be the best pilot that I could. And so that meant probably less drinking and partying Mm -hmm. and more time in the books, studying, making the most of the time that I was in the airplane, and always trying to make myself better. Ties
0: in. Yeah. Continuous improvement. Right? Exactly.
1: It's exactly what it is. And then taking advantage of those opportunities when you get them. So when I was able, you know, I tried to go to weapons school, which is like Top Gun. Mm-hmm. And I was able, you know, I, I got picked up for that. And so I was able to be a graduate of, uh, of our weapons school and then later go back and teach. And so, yeah, so, you know, take advantage of the opportunities you can to always make yourself better and continually improve.
0: So is that basically the equivalent of Top Gun?
1: Yeah, so uh, Top Gun is a six-week school, and mm-hmm. it is the Naval Fighter Weapons School, and the Air Force Fighter Weapons School uh, is at a different base, but it basically has the same name. We just don't have a nickname for it, like Top Gun. We're gotcha. not cool enough for the, as the Navy. Yeah. Uh, our course is six months, so uh, definitely a lot longer. It, I don't know if you can say it's more intense, but it's six months of complete, very intense uh, training, both yeah. academics and flying. It's the greatest program you'll ever go through, but it is not easy.
0: Less shirtless volleyball. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No. Uh, <laughs> no shirtless volleyball going on. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of really long nights and a lot of studying, and, and that's the part that you don't see uh, in Top Gun. So Top Gun's a great movie. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of my friends are pilots because of that movie, and a lot of that is correct. You've got some, you know, very uh, strong personalities. You have that same team dynamic, competition, all that stuff is there. What you don't see from the movie is all the late nights, all the studying, the discipline. You know, That part obviously doesn't sell well for a movie, but it's certainly part of it if you're going to be a fire pilot.
0: Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah, I imagine learning that machine is not easy.
1: No, it is not. We, In fact, I've had friends that started out in bombers, and of course they wanted to be a fire pilot. So when they got their opportunity, they came over and flew F-16s, and then they realized that this is really hard. Yeah, I mean, you gotta study all the time. You're working all the time, and then when he got his chance, he actually moved over to to back to where he was because the the fighter lifestyle was a little too intense and too busy. Not for everybody.
0: Oh, no doubt, no doubt. I'm sure. Uh, is there anyone that you know of that became a fighter pilot and then just couldn't handle the stress and had to kind of bail out of the program or?
1: Yeah, there's a couple of them. Yeah, um, and you know it's. It's better to go somewhere where you are good, you know, something you are good at and enjoyable than just be miserable, you know, trying to you know, incrementally make yourself better, but never really getting where you want to be. And so those guys have moved on and they had a really good career, just not flying fighters.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, not, it's not for everyone, I'm sure. Yeah. So was that always like your childhood dream? Like when you were a kid, were you like the kid, you know, with playing with toy airplanes thinking, <laughs> oh, that's going to be me one day? No, not at all. And okay. So
1: I'm, I'm probably, I mean, there were definitely those guys like that, uh, and I've good on them for the ones who have that dream and they got there. I didn't really know that much about the Air Force growing up. My dad was in the Army, but just did uh, a couple years, and I ended up in the Air Force Academy because my dad said I probably couldn't make it. Wow. Challenge accepted. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, I had good grades, so, and uh, I did sports and all that stuff. So mm-hmm. I was able to get to the Air Force Academy, and then once there... You know, no surprise, I got indoctrinated and uh, said, oh, I definitely want to be a pilot. And then when you get to pilot training, you kind of figure out where you want to go because you get to see all the different types of flying. And that's how I knew I wanted to be a fighter pilot. But I didn't start out that way.
0: So So, no, like, ROTC or anything like that in high school? No,
1: not at all. Okay. In fact, both of my grandparents flew in World War II.
0: Okay. And I did
1: not even know that until after I got to the Air Force Academy. Wow. Yeah, it just kind of wasn't stuff, you know, wasn't what they brought up very much. So, yeah, apparently I did have a lineage, just didn't know about it.
0: Cool. So you were kind of from a military family, but it wasn't, you know, drilled into you as a kid. Like, you're no, going to go to not. the military, this is, this is the route you're going.
1: No, they, they didn't really encourage me or, or push me that way until I saw that I had an interest myself. And okay. then I found out that two of the places that I flew out of, my grandfather flew out of as well when he was in World War II, so that's kind of cool.
0: Yeah, that's very yeah, cool. Yeah, we
1: shared some, a lot of good stories.
0: I bet, I bet. So once you knew that they, they had a, a flying background, I'm sure you, you asked them Oh yeah. to uh, delve into that a little bit more.
1: Yeah, every time I'd see them at Christmas, I'd always make them tell me stories. It was awesome.
0: fun. Do you have any super interesting stories yourself from combat?
1: I've got a couple. I mean, uh, I did eight combat deployments, so you're probably going to pick up a story or two yeah. uh, <laughs> after doing all that flying. But yeah, interested in hearing anything now, or you want to talk about it later?
0: Yeah. Before we get into it, just what areas of conflict did you fly in?
1: So from the eight combat deployments, I did three over Iraq. I did one in Serbia, so the Kosovo War in 1999, mm-hmm. and then my other, th- I said three, four in Iraq one in Serbia, and three to Afghanistan. Okay. And so my last assignment in the Air Force was a year in Afghanistan out of a Bagram Air Force base.
0: Where would you say was the scariest place to be? You know, where where was the most intense war zone?
1: So for us, it was Afghanistan. To show you the difference, when we were fighting the Kosovo War, we showed up a little bit late to the fight, so our squadron was not the first one to deploy. And so normally you're intense and that way it can be, you know, really close, but they were all out of space on the base, so they had to put us in a ski chalet up on the top of the mountain. So here we were, not intense, instead in a ski chalet, you're eating pizza and, you know, gelato every day, and you're either working out, visiting some local site in Italy, or you're going to war. Mm-hmm. It's by far the best. So the opposite of that would be Afghanistan, where we were in Afghanistan. So Bargham Air Force Base or Bargham Air Base is just north of Kabul. Mm -hmm. Um, If you weren't flying, then possibly they were shooting rockets inside the base. So you never had to, you could never let your guard down. Yeah. And then when you were flying, there was generally uh, a lot of action going on. They mainly were not shooting at us as far as the airplanes in the sky, but we were, it was very intense with the guys on the ground. So coalition to not just Americans, but everyone part of the coalition, you're we basically defending them from the terrorists wow. out there. Yeah. So it was it was pretty intense every time you took off.
0: Yeah, I imagine so. That's wild. So Afghanistan you said was kind of the most intense area to be in. Yep. So what was Serbia like?
1: Serbia and Kosovo.
0: Okay. And and what was it like being over there?
1: So also intense, but in order to get into the area of responsibility, so the place that we were fighting, we would fly down the Adriatic, we would tank. So it would take almost an hour of being airborne before you got into the hostile territory. So you had time to think about your mission, get mentally focused, where in Afghanistan, they could be shooting at you or you could be shooting at somebody literally five minutes after you take off. Wow. So yeah, a little, little more intense. Plus there were times actually walking out to the airplane that we had to duck and cover for incoming missiles. So, yeah, EFGASing was a pretty intense
0: place. Yeah, sounds like it.
1: Now, that wasn't, didn't happen all the time. You know, sometimes, just like I said, peaks and valleys, you would take off, fly a four-hour mission and not do anything mm-hmm. other than be there for moral support in case something happened. But then other times, things would be, you know, very intense uh, as soon as you took off. You'd be relieving someone that was already engaged, and, you know, it happens really quick. So you always have to be prepared.
0: So I'm sure you have some stories of where you were a really key player in combat, right? So were, were there any moments where where you were the man? It's like you know, if you hadn't been there, you know, everything would have gone wrong.
1: <laughs> you know, we get lots of stories. I don't think usually it's not just one person that saves a day. It requires a whole team. So I may be the one that finally you know, hits the button that shoots the missile or drops the bomb, but you know we've had guys guys on the ground that are coordinating for fire. You've got all the, the leaders that authorize it. And then you've got the coordination between my wingman and I. So there's never really just one person that you know saves the day, uh, if, if you will. But yes, we had some pretty intense times. And so I'll tell you about one of them. There was a, a city way north of Kabul. Our guys, so American U.S. Army guys, were in the city. They were doing a clearing operation, and they'd gotten pinned down by you know, insurgents. And so the fighting was so close that it was literally coming from across the street. And usually you know, you're fighting a lot further away, but in an urban environment, then the fighting is really close. And so my women and I had been sent up there to protect them because they figured something might happen. And sure enough, we get calls on the radio, you know, hey, you gotta help us. And listening to them on the radio, you can hear the bullets pinging off you know, their building. And yeah. you can hear them returning fire. So you yeah. know that it's a pretty hot firefight. <laughs> and uh, the good thing about being airborne is that we can look down and basically have a, a different view and perspective from the guys who are hiding behind a desk or something uh, trying to keep cover. So they were able to very quickly coordinate for fire. I had my two ship of F-16s and I called in another two ship. So we basically get four F-16s. That way when... Two are going to the tanker. Two are on station, and we basically keep constant coverage over the city. So generally, the way you would find the enemy is that they would give you coordinates. It doesn't really work in the middle of a city, mm-hmm. so they can give you some rough coordinates. But literally, the way that they told us to find the enemy is that they had a smoke grenade. They threw it out the window, it ran across the street, and then you know, so there's some green smoke, and we looked down and we're like, do you see the smoke? I'm like, yeah, we see the smoke. That's where the enemy is. So that part was pretty easy. Uh, but then we had to set up. We couldn't drop a bomb, which is what we normally would do, because uh, it would not only take out the enemy, but also the friendlies. So um, when they're this close together, it's called danger close. And so if you're going to employ ordnance at danger close range, then it also has to go up their chain of command with the army, uh, because they have to accept a lot more risk. And of course, we just have to make sure we're on our game that day. And so uh, in the end, we ended up all four F-16s were able to do a low altitude strafe and uh, basically shoot our, our gun versus dropping bombs onto the, the building where the enemies were, were shooting from. Wow. And so our, our gun's a 20 millimeter Gatling gun. It's, it's not as awesome as the A-10, but it's still as effective. Yeah. Uh, it shoots 100 rounds a second. So also pretty intense. will do some damage. Yeah. Yeah. And it stopped all the fighting. Uh, and it basically caught the building on fire as well, so our guys were able to exfil or you know leave the scene without anyone getting hurt. Awesome. But yeah, the whole thing took about two and a half hours, and so you're getting to the tanker wow. as fast as you can so you can come back and help out. And when you're not the one actually engaged in the strafing run, then you got your targeting pod looking at the scene and trying to help out, figure out you know where the enemy is and whatnot. So yeah, pretty intense.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Did you ever have any mental thoughts where it was, like, hard to complete a mission, where it's, it's like, you know, civilians around or something like that, and it's just, like, kind of some things getting in your head?
1: No. So we've had challenges. Yeah. Like, there's weather. You know, you can't just—unless you have good coordinates from guys on the ground, if you can't see the target, it's pretty tough to drop a bomb on the target. And so we've had challenges to overcome— you know, are the tankers close by enough to to stay on station long enough? But as far as completing the mission, that's never really there's never really been a problem mentally completing the mission. And I think a lot of that is that it's nice to be on the good side.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. So
1: you know, as far as morality speaking, you know, we are we are the good guys. Of course, everyone says that, but I think history will prove that to be true that mm-hmm. you know we're on the good side of the conflict. Uh, I'm either taking out a terrorist on the battlefield, or I'm protecting our guys who are engaged in a firefight. And so I've always slept good at night, regardless of of what I did during the day. Now it's never really been a a mental, I've never had to get past anything in order to complete the mission. It's mainly just doing all the, the mental work to make the mission happen.
0: Absolutely, because it sounds like you were basically mostly involved in the war on terror, right? Yep. So you weren't really fighting nations as much as terrorist groups, right?
1: Correct, yeah. It was either the Taliban or Al-Qaeda or you know, stuff like that, guys that we know are bad, or they were guys that were actively trying to hurt you know, our guys on the ground, in which case we're going to come and defend them.
0: Were there any high-level terrorist guys that you, you were able to uh, kind of— Play a part in getting rid of yeah, so our, rooting the world off.
1: <laughs> so our squadron, you know, we, we were an F sixteen squadron, uh, also at Bagram, where we had A tens and strike eagles, so F fifteen E's. So we were could all get assigned to any target, basically whatever was the highest priority task. once you got airborne, and so there was a time in Afghanistan when the special forces had been tracking this guy for weeks, mm-hmm. and he was in an urban area, but they thought he was going to move in between one city and another. And so just as important as taking out the bad guys is also protecting all the lives of the innocent civilians that are nearby. So even though you find somebody that you don't like, you can't necessarily take them out because you don't want any collateral damage. It's just not worth it, right? Exactly. So we were called to support this operation to be ready in case this guy was was moving in between cities, we were gonna get him. Mm So already the stress level is high because it's only a half mile between the cities, and he's on a basically a, a moped or a mini bike. It's kind of <laughs> a standard fare of traveling in Afghanistan. Uh, that and a Toyota Hilux car. Yeah, uh, which car. are
0: awesome. Yes. Super jealous we don't have those here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> They're everywhere out there. This guy's on a moped of some sort, and so my women and I were on opposite sides of a circle, probably about a four-mile radius uh, as we're just watching to wait and see if this guy moves. Uh, and the idea is that one of us would basically laze the target, so mark the target, mm-hmm. and then the other one would drop a laser-guided bomb, so it would guide all the way to the individual that we are trying to take out. So we're watching them, we're seeing them move around, and then you can tell it's about to get real because the special forces, who are normally nice and calm, they start getting really excited. And they're like, all right, you know, for flight, get ready. And so sure enough, the guy makes, he finally leaves the city and makes a, a beeline for the next city. And they said, you've got to go now. And so right about that time, my wingman goes, I lost the target. So I'm the only one that can see the target and therefore I'm also the only one that can drop a bomb on them. So normally it's, it's done with two people. Uh, this one was just done by myself. But yeah, I was able to turn in, maintain contact with this guy as he was going through the trees. Which is hard to, to track somebody, mm-hmm. get enough speed, drop the bomb off, and then guide the bomb all the way into impact, and it was it was a good hit, just about hundred yards from the next the next city. So it was a very short amount of time, but everyone was happy in the long run that it all worked out well. And we removed one more bad guy off the battlefield. So
0: excellent. Where did you pick up your nickname? So I've seen on a coffee mug <laughs> in the mornings at Porsche. It says the Riddler on there.
1: That's right. So our call signs are a huge tradition, especially in the fighter pilot community. It is when there are, there are rituals, there are rites of passage, a lot of stuff surrounds getting your call sign. Sometimes they're because you have a physical deformity, which is absolutely fair game. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> so basically there's three ways to get a call sign. Either you have a physical deformity or a speech impediment or something that oh. makes you stand out from the crowd, you're going to get a call
0: sign out of that. So it could be the stutter. That's Yeah, your, yeah something,
1: <laughs> your name may yeah. go conveniently. If you added a couple more letters to either side, then it makes an even better name. And so a lot of times just your last name can give you a call sign. And then the best ones, though, are the ones that you earned because you did something probably stupid. And then everyone caught you in it, and then you get a call sign out of it. So, for example, I'll give you some good ones because mine was actually not that exciting. Yeah. Um, we had a, a guy named Mock. So, you know, speed of sound, Mach. Well, mm-hmm. he got that because he was doing practice bombing runs in Japan. Mm-hmm. And if you point the nose at the ground and leave the airplane in afterburner, you will go fast. And so he exceeded the Mach, which meant this huge, you know, sound boom, <laughs> sonic boom hit hit a, basically a city nearby. Half a million dollars worth of windows. Wow. That we had to pay for, you know, the Air Force as a whole. Well, he, so he
0: was low to the ground. Is that why? It, yeah, he was low yeah. to the ground,
1: pointing at the ground, and then broke the sound barrier. You know, busted out all these windows. He did it
0: twice. Wow.
1: So his name, his call sign is Mock, because he broke the sound barrier. So those are those are the best call signs. My call sign Riddler is simply because I asked a lot of questions when I was a lieutenant. Okay. So I was the guy asking the questions. So ah, you're a Riddler.
0: You weren't freestyling raps or anything like no. that. No. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't have a uh, an evil, you know, second personality or anything like that. Just, yeah. Just a lot of questions. I
0: was always curious. I was like, it doesn't seem to fit though, but yeah. Yep. Yeah. So speaking of that, you've always been such a humble guy. I always expected fire pilots to be these like macho guys, you know, kind of like Iceman and Top Gun. Would you say that... You are an abnormality in that, in that area, or are most guys pretty, you know, even-kill, no, well, kind of so, humble guys?
1: Well, thanks. Um, so, yes, there's definitely some big personalities.
0: I would imagine so. I mean,
1: Just like racing, right? Mm-hmm. There's some, some larger-than-life personalities walking around. And if you think about it, you know, you want a type A person that is not afraid of making decisions and who's pretty confident. So, uh, getting a pool of those, you're going to get some big personalities there. Oh, yeah. Uh, there are also, I think, plenty of guys that are family men, mm-hmm. quiet, soft-spoken, but when told to go out and do the mission, then there are the guys that will get it done as well. So, it, it takes all types. I get my identity based on my faith and my family, and kind of what I do is, is not who I am, it's just what I do. Mm-hmm. I think some guys, they who they are is based on what they are or what they do, and so... I think there is a little bit of difference in that, but, you know, it takes all types. For sure. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and I'm sure not having the big ego makes things easier because a lot of people, I would say, you know, probably get caught up in their ego and make a lot of mistakes because of that, I'm sure.
1: It definitely can happen. And, you know, the the big ego guys, when they make mistakes, boy, that gets highlighted. And the I'm thing is, sure. we all make mistakes. I mean, there's just it's just too complicated uh, to not make mistakes. And so... It actually, it's easier to overcome your mistakes if you're not trying to live up to something that, you know, is an unrealistic expectation, if you will.
0: Yeah, how responsive are those fire jets? I mean, I'm sure it's really easy to make a mistake when uh, it's just a twitch of the wrist, right?
1: Yeah, and the F-16 is just a twitch of the wrist, so it's a side stick controller. It only moves a quarter of an inch, but it basically measures how much pressure you put on the stick. The airplane itself... Is it's called relaxed stability and it's basically built to be unstable. So, if you didn't have the computers flying the airplane, it would go out of control.
0: So, more like a, a helicopter. Like, I've always, uh, <laughs> I fly small, slow planes and they pretty much fly themselves, but uh, I've flown a couple of helicopters and they're basically trying to kill you. So, I'm sure a fighter jet is kind of like same that. Way.
1: Yeah. So, again, the computers are the ones that, that keep it stable, but because of that, because it is kind of inherently unstable. Is very maneuverable, so if you need to roll or you know pull a lot of G's very quickly, then you can do that with the F-16. And in fact, because we just tell the computer what we want to do, it can maneuver all the surfaces that it needs to in order to make the airplane react as quickly as possible. So yeah, it's it's basically the Ferrari of the skies. It's a fantastic airplane to fly.
0: And how do the G forces compare in a plane versus like a sports car? Because I've always heard in like a fighter jet. You're never pulling a lot of sustained g force versus a car is less g force, but it's sustained. Would you say that's accurate?
1: No, not really. Because if you're in a dogfight, I mean, you can pull nine G's and hold it for 30 seconds. Oh, wow. And it's very rare. Normally, you pull nine G's for maybe 10 or 15 seconds, and then you'll be maybe five or six G's. But you can sustain that for a very long time, you know, minutes, based on what altitude you're at and the circumstances that you're under. So, I would think the G-forces are higher, and you can sustain them longer. Where in a car, you're not going to be, you know, eventually the turn's going to be over with, and you'll be on a straightaway again. True. Or you'll, you'll go to turning the other way. Now, in a car, you have G-forces in all directions, so left, right, front, aft. The cars that I drive, it's always, you know, one and a half Gs at the most. Yeah. Which is still pretty exciting when you're right on the ground. You know, Formula 1s, they can go up to five Gs and braking and whatnot. The F-16 can do nine Gs. We don't do it every day. Mm-hmm. Again, it's only when you're more in the in a dogfight training scenario versus uh, other types of missions. But it's only straight down. So if you want to turn the airplane, you don't turn sideways. You roll the airplane 90 degrees, and then you pull up. So you're all, the G forces are always in the same direction. If that makes sense.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So you're you're actually pulling up to turn. You turn yes. it sideways, roll it. So if then... I'm in a
1: right turn, I'm pulling, you know, 90 degrees, and I'm pulling up in a right turn, and then I'd actually unload, roll the airplane 180 degrees, and then pull up again, turn left. So, wow. Yeah.
0: That's different. I'm sure that takes some getting used to.
1: It does. You just have to, and that's just part of flying, just learning how to make it work. But under the higher Gs like that, it's, it's a roll and pull when you want to go somewhere. Wow.
0: How common is dogfighting? Like, how, how often do you actually get in that scenario where, you know, you're up in the air and you're you're with the, the enemy targets, you know, just battling it out in the air?
1: So I've had some friends that have not really done dogfighting, but they have been in some air-to-air engagements. Mm-hmm. Um, dogfighting really, and for a good reason, doesn't really happen. Uh, we have missiles that can outperform what the airplane itself can do. We would like to... You know, get rid of the enemy before even our individual contest, because then stress level becomes a lot higher because now he can actually do something to you. So, you know, we'd like to eradicate our enemy long before they even know we're there if we can. That's why we have stealth airplanes and all that other stuff. But you have to train for the worst case. So I've never been in a dogfight with an actual enemy, Mm -hmm. but I've been in lots of dogfight practices, either with other F-16s or even with some mig 29s when we would fight the Germans that had mid 29s. So yeah, it's fun to fight other airplane. You can see where your aircraft has more performance in some areas than others and try to exploit it. That thinking, mm-hmm. decision making, and being able to place your airplane where you want it does translate to other types of flying, like on a bombing run or something like that. So the skills are transferable, but I would say I'm lucky that I've never done any actual dogfighting.
0: Yeah. So. so after the world wars, it's probably very unlikely that you're going to be yes. involved in that. Yeah. The last so time we kind of old school.
1: We did, we did good dogfighting in the Korean War, and we had some dogfights in the Vietnam War, but pretty much since that, there hasn't really been much. It's yeah. just, just been an exchange of missiles.
0: Technology got better and better to where yeah. you, you didn't have to do that. That's correct. I'm sure many more pilots have survived since then. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a good thing.
1: In fact, a lot of, you know, most of the the deaths in at least flying fighters usually, you know, getting spatial disoriented or uh, losing consciousness because of the Gs and then not waking up in time to to fix the airplane. So unfortunately, we still do have accidents, but they're usually caused by kind of human error. Mm -hmm. And They're putting devices on the airplane that if it recognizes that you're not in control of the aircraft or that you're making the wrong inputs, it will actually save you from hitting the ground. Wow. Um, Those happened after I left. Yeah. But it's a great thing. It's a great technology that they're putting on the airplanes.
0: Yeah, I'm sure all the stuff we're seeing in like modern consumer drones probably, I'm sure, come from the military world, them figuring out how to not crash very, very expensive airplanes. That's true. Yep. So, what advice would you give to someone aspiring, a young guy who's aspiring, or a girl? You know, yeah. don't, don't want to uh, no, not include lots, the ladies.
1: We have lots of girls in the Air Force, and they are great pilots. So just like we've got some girls that we know that are racing, and they're very good race car drivers. So Absolutely. That kind of leads into what my advice would be, is don't let someone tell you you can't do it. Yeah. You know, when you're looking at, you know, so you're telling me it's going to take two and a half years of training before I'm a fighter pilot? Yeah, it's a long road. It's a lot of fun, but it's too easy to listen to the naysayers and you know, take the easy road out, you know, well, I probably can't make it anyway, so I'm just not even going to try. Man, try. If that's your dream, go for it. Absolutely go for it. It's going to be hard work. There is no easy way, but you also, there's only one way, which is to go through pilot training. I mean, I've I've had lots of guys that have lots of money and they've never even been able to fly in an F-16 because that's not something money can buy. No, it's not. If that's your dream, absolutely go for it. Just realize, yeah, it's going to be a lot of work, but it's totally worth it.
0: And, you know, time is obviously of the essence if that's what you want to do, right? Yep. So you're not, if you're 30 years old and you want to become a fighter pilot, I'm sorry. It's probably not yeah, going really to happen for <laughs> you. So, so what would you say, I believe the cutoff is 26 to become a pilot in the military. But if you want to become a fighter pilot and you want a real chance at it, what would you say is the realistic kind of cutoff for pursuing that?
1: Well again, it's 26. If you get into pilot training, you know Air Force pilot training or any other military pilot trainings, then the world is your oyster. and if you do well enough, then you'll be able to select a, and get a fighter. So they don't discriminate once you make it to pilot training. Uh, you just have to be able to get your foot in the door and get accepted. So you know the, the most well-trodden paths are going to a service academy. So, you know, Annapolis, uh, West Point, or the Air Force Academy, uh, because if you're pilot qualified and you graduate, then you're kind of guaranteed a slot, Mm -hmm. uh, where if you go through ROTC, it's a little more competitive to get that slot when you graduate. But you have to have a four-year college degree uh, because you're an officer first and a pilot second. At least Mm -hmm. uh, that's how I think of it in the Air Force. So you're a lieutenant, you got your college degree, and then you get selected for pilot training, and you go from there. Uh, they also will take guys, though, straight, you know, uh, so officer candidate school. So you get your four-year degree from whatever school, mm-hmm. and you say, I want to be a pilot. You go to the recruiter. He signs you up. You do, a, like, a six-week basic training where you become an officer at the end, and you're right into pilot training. And people do that.
0: Now, is it an, an advantage to have, say, like an aerospace engineering degree or something like that? Well, I think if just
1: a four-year degree is, is really what you're looking for, just so you can be an officer. I mean, it shows interest if you have a aerospace engineering, but I was an aerospace engineer. You know, I could tell you, I could derive the temperature on the backside of a turbine <laughs> fan blade. It did not help me become a better pilot. It no. just helped me be an engineer. So really, it's a four-year degree, but if you have actual flight time, if you have your private pilot license, that really shows that this is, you know, a path that you're willing to pursue because you've already shown that you're dedicated, you have discipline, and that you're passionate about it. And so that's the kind of people that we want going to pilot training.
0: Is there any other kind of attributes that would that would set you apart from the rest of the crowd that are, that are trying to become a pilot?
1: It's really just more the determination and drive. And so mm-hmm. if you're one, to start something, and then if it's too hard, put it down. Then that's probably not pilot trainings for you. But if you can start hard things and complete them, then yeah, that's, then you would be fine in pilot training.
0: So it's, it's really more just dedication and aptitude of, of being able to learn the skills, learn all the obviously technical stuff involved. Yep. I'm sure if you're not a bookworm, it's going to be a pretty rough road for you.
1: It can be, because especially in pilot training, you know, the syllabus moves fast. You have to graduate with your class, you know, in the 12 months or 13 months, depending upon the size of your program, and everything builds on each other. So there's no lagging behind. You know, you have to stay with the rest of the group and finish. But our very best pilot, like the best actual hand, stick, and rudder pilot, he barely graduated the Air Force Academy. I mean, he just snuck by, you know, with enough grades to graduate, and he was our best pilot. And then you had other guys with, you know, a really high GPA and they were average pilots. So it's not really your intellect. It's more just, you know, do you get it? And, yeah. And can you you know, fly an airplane?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the same with everything. Some people are just naturally talented at what they're trying to do. Yep,
1: yeah. And so in that respect, flying is more like a sport than it is, you know, taking an SAT test or something. There's... There's a the hand-eye coordination, you know, there is a natural aptitude, but then you have to develop it.
0: So you've got kids, do they show any interest in, <laughs> in flying, or are they kind of blazing their own trail? So a little bit of the latter, my oldest was interested in flying,
1: or so he thought, and then uh, he really got involved in engineering, mm-hmm. and so he's already decided to go to Georgia Tech, which we think is fantastic, Excellent. we offered him, you know, hey, do you want to do you know, ROTC attack? Do you want to go to the Air Force Academy and try that? He could have made it if he wanted to. But I mean, I dragged him around through so many different assignments growing up. And I think he was a little bit already tired of moving. And he really wanted to do engineering. And although the Air Force does have some engineering spots, you know, if you want to work for Elon Musk or, you know, SpaceX or something like that, then you're really not going to do that in the Air Force. But you can still you know, do engineering, which is he wants to do, and he may work for DARPA, which uh, directly affects you know our military and stuff like that. So uh, he's a patriot. Just uh, what really interests him doesn't mesh that well with the military, and so he's going to try his hand in engineering through Georgia Tech. My youngest thinks he likes flying. He's taking a flying class in high school right now. We're going to give cool. him some flying lessons this summer and see if he really likes it and see where that goes.
0: Cool. What about cars? Are they are they interested in cars like you? Or? So my oldest is
1: very interested in cars. Yeah, he loves it. He that's means,
0: the field he's trying to work in, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, he'd love if he could. He'd be you know an engineer that works on cars. So that's kind of his dream job. We'll see where that goes. But in the meantime, he's done a couple you know mountain drives with me. He wants to do autocross, and he wants me to take him to the track and teach him how to do the track driving. So yeah, he likes it.
0: Awesome. Yeah, Bo organizes the best mountain drives. Uh, <laughs> very organized person, much more so than myself. Yeah, he's always organizing drives for awesome groups of people, and we have a whole lot of fun with it. Oh, thanks.
1: Yeah, it's more fun the merrier. We're more people, more fun.
0: No We're doubt. That. <laughs> so where did your passion for cars come from?
1: You know, my dad had an MGB growing up, small car, and he fit a family of four in there. And so we had that kind of little sports car growing up. When I was in high school, I just had, I love cars. I had a dirt bike growing up, so I liked machines. And then my dad got a Mitsubishi Starion. You remember okay.
0: those? I
1: do not know those. So it was, it was one of the first of the little, little hot hatches were, I guess, sports cars that came mm-hmm. out of Japan. So it was along with the 300ZX, like the first gen. Yeah. This was a Mitsubishi Starion little turbo four and it was kind of a sports car looked a lot like a a 944 and so through him and kind of his love of cars then I developed my own sense for it reading all the magazines it was always about Porsche right everything was compared against 911 so I'm like seems to be the Porsche is the you know the gold standard Mm -hmm. and so I've always had my eyes on Porsches growing up and when I was able to I was able to you know buy an older used one and enjoy it and it's been great. Awesome. And now I get to coach people and also have access to the new ones at the Porsche Experience Center. It's a lot of fun.
0: Excellent. Well, just to kind of round it out here, I I guess I just want to ask you, what advice would you give to anyone who has a dream that they want to pursue? I mean, what is the best general life advice that you could give a young person?
1: Yeah, so it's going to sound cliche, but really it's go for it. You know, life is too short. There's too many naysayers that are going to tell you how hard it is or that you don't have enough money. There's always a way. And so if you've got a dream, you got to go for it. I will tell you, I have had so many people come up to me and say, oh, you know, I want to be a pilot, but, you know, I don't think my eyes are good enough or I don't think I would have made it. Well, you don't know unless you try, right?
0: That's right. And
1: so if that's really what you want to do, go out there and do it. And, you know, we talked to lots of racers that – they didn't come from wealthy families, but they were able because they, they just loved it and they were immersed in it. They found a way to get a, to learn how to, to do the craft and get picked up a sponsorship and and you know make the name for themselves. So yeah, if it's something that you really love, you put your heart into it. Go for it.
0: Yeah, determination is key for sure. Yes. And Living proof, you know, you can make it happen. You can make your dreams a reality. So
1: that's right. And, and that's the great thing about at least our Air Force, I think, is that, you know, they they just want, there is no, it's not who your dad is or who you know. You show up, and it's about your skill and your ability to make it through the syllabus. And yeah, they're still so no, uh,
0: getting grandfathered in. To that's right. It's to a very level care. playing field. Yep. Any other stories that you're just dying to tell before we end the show here?
1: Also in Afghanistan, not, not all the stories come from Afghanistan, but most of mine today do. Every now and then, we would have our mission would be complete. We'd be almost an hour away from base as far as our flight time, and yet we had a full tank of gas. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't happen very often, but it's nice when you can really enjoy being a pilot. Yeah, there's sometimes that you're just so busy and it's so stressful that you're not really thinking about what you're doing. It's so only when you you know can step away and look back and go, "Wow, that's actually a lot of fun." Mm -hmm. So when you have those moments that you can enjoy being a pilot when you're actually doing it, it's great. And so we had a place in Afghanistan called Star Wars Canyon. Huge 5,000-foot mountains on either side of this valley, and the valley would really twist and turn. And so you felt like you were in the movie Star Wars, flying your F-16 through here. And so when it all kind of lined up where you had lots of gas, the mission was over, and you had to get back home, you could fly through the Star Wars Canyon, and everybody would, would just would talk about it. And while you're in it, you didn't have anything to worry about except just flying. And it was some of the most cool, cool experiences you could have. So yeah,
0: that sounds amazing. How <laughs> how, how narrow was it? Was it like you you rolled the plane over and you were guiding it through like that? No, no. So okay. <laughs> it was never.
1: But you know, when you're flying 500 miles an hour and you're generally about 500 feet above the ground, stuff moves by pretty fast. And so you want a nice comfortable margin of error. So, Very yeah,
0: expensive toys.
1: Exactly. <laughs> so it felt tight, but uh, it was all still extremely safe. But you'd still, you'd look left and right and you'd see the mountains above you and it was pretty cool.
0: Yeah, I'm sure that's amazing. Those countries, you know, they don't get enough credit, but I'm, I've always heard they're actually amazing landscapes.
1: Oh, it was, it's a beautiful place. If people weren't so busy fighting each other, it'd, I mean, they'd have a great tourism industry if they could kind of get their act together. It yeah. Was beautiful.
0: Yeah, some of the tallest mountains in the world, actually. Yeah, right there. So.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's gorgeous, you know, especially in the winter when they're snow covered. And it's a it's a beautiful place.
0: And I'm sure, like you said, you don't get a lot of moments. You know, you're always on a mission. So I'm sure it is nice when you get to kind of take it all in and enjoy yeah. the landscapes and everything.
1: Yeah, it happened very rarely, but when it did, it was really nice.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming out, though. That was awesome hearing your stories. Yeah, it, thanks,
1: Chad. Good to come out.
0: I've always looked up to you, you know, from the day I met you, you've always been the nicest, humblest guy. I well, always appreciate your company and I'm uh, really glad to have you on the show.
1: I appreciate it anytime.
0: That was Henry Bo Rogers on Coupe de Thrill.